as they uh, find their way to their seats, I do want to go over just a few matters with you. First of all, the vote on the budget last week uh, passed by almost uh, 99%. It's to be exact, 90, 98.6%. So thank you for your participation in that. You know, I mentioned last week the number of folks that we typically see pass away in this season of the year. Seems like that happens every year, happening this year likewise. Uh, we want to continue to pray for Tanya Cook's family. Her dad uh, passed away. Uh, that service was last week. Also, Harvey Lyerly did pass away, and uh, his service was yesterday. Uh, 5 a.m. this morning, Al Artuzo uh, passed away. The uh, funeral service by registration only will be for the young lady that we've been praying for the last couple of months, Morgan Weatherby, 19-year-old young lady that was hit head-on by another young lady, and uh, her service is tomorrow. And then also Angela Jordan has lost a grandparent. So these are just some of the families we want to be remembering uh, during this time. In this particular Sunday of Advent, we focus on love. And I want to ask you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word again. And I'm just going to uh, read a couple of the verses that Pastor Seeker read a few moments ago, John 3.16, and I'm going to talk to you this morning on the subject matter, we love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Father, this Christmas, help us to understand more about your great love for us. Father, if there's even one here today who has never experienced that love, They've never been saved. They've never been born again. God, I pray that it would be your good pleasure to move upon their hearts today through the power of your Holy Spirit, convicting them of their sin and drawing them to faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, may this be their first Christmas that they truly experience what the incarnation of Christ was all about. That Christ came to seek and to save that which was lost. Lord, open eyes today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. 
But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven on earth is named. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. What is the breadth and length and height and depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So we've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There's no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear for fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If you were to read through the King James Version of the Bible, the word love shows up 310 times in 280 verses, 131 times in the Old Testament, and 179 times in the New Testament. If you were to read from the New American Standard Version, love is mentioned 348 times, 133 times in the Old Testament, and 215 times in the New Testament. In the NIV version, it's mentioned 551 times, 319 times in the Old Testament, and 232 times in the New Testament. But folks, this morning I want us to look at one of the most beloved verses in all the Bible that we ever read about love. 
As we look this morning at that verse, namely John 3.16. John 3.16 has been referred to as the gospel in a nutshell. It's also been referred to as the most exquisite flower in God's garden. Now, what is it that makes it the gospel in a nutshell? What is it that makes this passage so powerful? We're going to look at that today. And what we're going to see today is that it's only because of the love of God that we can know God and love him. You know, I suppose if you were to ask me what's the number one attribute of God mentioned in the scripture, it would surely have to be the holiness of God. But if you were to ask me the attribute of God that is most precious to humanity, I would have to say it would be the love of God. I want you to notice with me, first of all, this morning, the proclamation of God's love. John writes, for God so loved. Now, I've told you before in past sermons that there are four primary words in the Greek language that the Greeks used for love. One of those four we do not see in the Bible. But it was very common in the culture of the first century world. Eros, love. We get our word today erotic from that. It's the love that Hollywood promotes. A fleshly lust type of emotion. And then there is storge love, family love, family affection, like a child would have for a parent or a parent for a child. And then there is phileo love, brotherly love, kinship, friendship love, like that enjoyed among best friends, for example. And then there is agape love, self-giving, sacrificial type love. And for that reason, it's perhaps the greatest word for love because it's the love you have for someone when you're able to forget about yourself and what you want or what you need and you're able to act strictly in behalf of the other person, agape love. And that's the word that is used here in John 3.16. When I think of stories in the Bible about agape love, I think about the parable of the prodigal son that probably should be called the parable of the loving father. The father has two sons. He loves them both. But one of them goes astray, and he's waiting. He's watching. He tells that story in response to the Pharisees who cannot believe that Jesus is fellowshipping with sinners, with tax collectors and prostitutes, the down and out of society. And so Jesus tells these parables about lostness. In the parable of the prodigal son, how a father is waiting on this son to come back home. You know, the depth of God's love is unimaginable. You and I, in our finiteness, we can't measure it. 
We see in the Bible that the love of God is the great driving force in the Bible that we, we, we see the scarlet thread of redemption all through the scripture from Genesis to Revelation. God pursuing humanity. Even as he did Adam and Eve in the garden after they sinned, God went looking for them and said, Adam, where are you? And Christ, of course, is the centerpiece of that scarlet thread. God moves all of human history to bring about man's redemption. Why? Because of his love. John writes here, for God so loved the world. It speaks of all classes of people, rich and poor, Jew and Gentile alike. God is not a respecter of persons. And so in Isaiah 55, the scripture says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Who is this God? He's eternal. He's self-existing. He's uncreated. He needs nothing. He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. He's omnipotent. His names in scripture are names like Elohim, the great creator, Jehovah, or Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, Adonai, the Lord, Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides, Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals my hurts. He's revealed himself in so many ways, in so many different names in the word of God. He's the bread of life, the good shepherd. He's the one who's high and lifted up. When Isaiah the prophet got a vision of him in the temple, Isaiah was certain that he himself was going to die. He's the one adored by angels, cherubim and seraphim, and in whose presence they hide behind their wings and they cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. In Isaiah 45, 5, the scripture says, I am the Lord God Almighty, and besides me there is no other God. It is this God. Who so loved the world. Folks, God loved you and me before we were even born. Like in the case of Jeremiah, God told Jeremiah, before you were formed in the womb, I knew you and appointed you to be a prophet to the nations. People think they have to do something to earn God's love, but God loved you before you were even born and before you had even done a single thing, good or bad. Every day, the whole world, including unbelievers, experiences the love of God through common grace. Common grace is the fact that he makes his rain to fall on the just and the unjust. And he makes his sun to shine on the just and the unjust. What's the proclamation here? The proclamation is, for God so loved the world. Secondly, though, I want you to see the presentation of God's love, that he gave his only begotten son. In other words, God's love was not just words. It wasn't an empty statement. He loved, and so he gave. 
John says in 1 John 3, 16, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. You can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. Because love by its very nature is giving. Love certainly touches the emotions, but folks, love is more than emotions. It is a decision. It is a choice. You marry somebody, for instance, and you stay with them, even though they might chew their toenails in bed. <laughs> what did God do? He gave his son. Jesus is God's only begotten son. Only begotten means unique. In other words, there is no one else like Jesus. He was special above all. There's no one else who was born of a virgin that it could be said that God was his father. There's no one else like him, fully God and fully man. What theologians refer to as the hypostatic union. Two natures in one essence or being. Jesus is fully God and fully man. And neither nature diminishes or overshadows the other. And so Christ is the only begotten, unique son of the living God. You can speak of those who were saved as being sons of God, that is, children of God, but not in the same sense of Jesus being the Son of God. And in a perfect sense, Jesus obeyed the Father without sin. Jesus displayed what theologians refer to as both active obedience and passive obedience. Active obedience being that in his life he perfectly obeyed the will of the Father without sin. Passive obedience, the fact that he laid down his life and let his enemies do to him whatever they wanted to do. Although actually active obedience and passive obedience really apply to everything Christ did. In his life and death, actively, passively, obedient, and perfectly so. In giving his only begotten son, God gave his best for you and me. And so you and I were not redeemed with cheap things. We weren't even redeemed with precious things in the world like silver and gold and diamonds. We were redeemed by the blood of the Lamb of God. When John the Baptist saw Jesus, remember what he said to those who were following John. He pointed them to Jesus. He said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This God, this great God who loved the world is the God who gave his only begotten Son. Folks, there's no disconnect between the Father and the Son. One of the very first heretics the church ever had to deal with in its early days was a man by the name of Marcion. 
Now another man named Polycarp. Polycarp had been discipled by the Apostle John. Could you imagine being discipled by the Apostle John? Polycarp was that disciple. And when Polycarp met Marcion, you know what Polycarp called Marcion? He said, there goes the firstborn son of Satan. Marcion was an evil man. And he's a man who rejected the Old Testament and he rejected any part of the New Testament that referenced the Old Testament. It's not that he thought the Old Testament wasn't inspired, he just thought Christians shouldn't accept it. Marcion's canon or accepted books of the Bible was only a fraction of what we would accept. He only accepted edited version, uh, an edited version of Luke's gospel and most of Paul's letters minus any quotations from the Old Testament. And then there were some other variations also between his canon and the canon the church has accepted. His reasoning went something like this. And this is a very elementary explanation of, of his reasoning. And unfortunately, you can even run into it today. Marcion said that the God of the Old Testament was mean and vengeful. But Jesus is a kind and loving God. The, old, the, the God of the Old Testament, Marcion said, is evil. And Jesus came to destroy him. And so Marcion rejected the God of the Old Testament. Again, it's not that he denied his existence. He just thought he was evil. And what Marcion did was create a wedge, a separation between God the Father and God the Son. But folks, no such wedge or separation exists. The Father sent the Son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And John writes in John 1.18 that Jesus came to show us who God is and what he is like. Jesus told his disciples on one occasion, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so folks, there is no unlikeness or dissimilarity between the members of the Godhead. What you can say of one, you can say of the other when it comes to members of the Trinity. Now, I've spent a little more time here because even today, you can hear Christians make troubling statements. I've run into Christians before that don't even think we ought to be studying the Old Testament. Now, granted, let me say that all such comments are usually given in the vein that as the church, Christians need to focus on God's final revelation in the Son. And I don't think anybody would argue with that. In fact, you can point to the book of Hebrews, which tells us that God's not dealing with humanity anymore on the basis of the old covenant. But sometimes statements can be made by very well-meaning Christians that would leave some people with the impression that there's a bit of disconnect between the two testaments of the Bible. But we need to understand there's no disconnect. And we need to understand that Jesus didn't come in secret from the Father. He, he, he didn't come in his incarnation to try to fix anything that the Father had fallen short of. 
Jesus wasn't on some kind of private mission in secret from the Father, sneaking out of heaven so that at just the right time he could jump in the way of an angry God. Again, what's John 3.16 say? For God so loved the world that he gave. God sent his son. In fact, this even shows up in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, where God promises that one day the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. All the members of the Trinity have been working for all of eternity in complete agreement and unity for our redemption. Why did God send Jesus in the flesh? Listen to what Paul says in Romans 8. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Notice that Paul doesn't say Jesus came in sinful flesh, but rather in the likeness of sinful flesh. Listen to what one modern-day Christian apologist says about this. Now, this is a little bit heady, but we need to think about things like this. He writes, because our sins are against the God of infinite holiness... They are of infinite consequence. And so the proper punishment for them is infinite. Now, we are finite, so we can experience infinite punishment in a finite period of time. It takes eternity for us to experience infinite punishment. God planned for someone to bear our punishment as our substitute, but whoever would do it would have to be capable of bearing infinite punishment punishment in a finite time. That's why the substitute had to be infinite himself. That's why the Son of God became a man, so that as a man he could properly represent those for whom he died, and as God, his payment could be infinite, and that's to satisfy the justice of God's infinite holiness. You'll be tested on that later. But let me say in simpler language, Romans 5 points out that as Adam was our representative in the fall, even so Christ is our representative in his atonement. The sacrifice had to be offered from a man. But a sinful man who himself was a part and participant in sinful humanity could not have offered the atoning sacrifice. And so what did God do? God gave his only begotten son. The third thing I want you to see with me is the promise of God's love. The promise of God's love that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Think of those words that whosoever Yes, God so loved the world, but it's also very personal. Whosoever. And that means you can put your name in that spot. Folks, this is why we do missions. This is why we give to things like Lottie Moon. The gospel is for the world for whom? 
whosoever. Now that doesn't mean that all are going to be saved as he goes on to state here. But it means that the gospel is for all. Jew and Gentile alike. In fact, at the end of the Bible in Revelation 4 and 5 and then and again in Revelation 7, we see that there are people from every tribe and tongue and nation and race gathered around the throne making up the redeemed who are singing praises to God. This was so hard for the early church to understand. God had to convince the early church, at first just made up of Jews who had come to faith in Christ, that the gospel wasn't to be just a Jewish thing. It took God sending Simon Peter to the home of Cornelius before the church finally started to realize this. The gospel is for whosoever believes. God calls us to trust his son. This is the intent behind God's love and God's gift. Somebody asked Jesus one time, and what is the will of God? And Jesus responded to believe in God and in his only son whom he has sent. And what's the result that you might have eternal life? He says that you should not perish, but that you might have eternal life. I want you to think with me about that word perish. It's a word that's strong enough that it ought to make anybody tremble. It's the revelation of the other side of God's character. He's not only a God of immeasurable love, but he's also a God of infinite holiness and justice. Perish means that we not only die physically, but we die spiritually. To perish means that you go out into an eternity without God. And apart from Christ. Revelation 20 verse 15 says. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life. He was cast into the lake of fire. Again folks that ought to make anybody tremble. At the thought of that. God gave his son. So that that might be avoided. People will end up in hell. Unfortunately, Jesus said the road to hell is broad and wide and many will travel that road. But look at verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Christ says he didn't come to judge, but, but to save. Later, he's going to say he came to judge. It's easy to reconcile in the scripture. Christ didn't come in his first advent to judge. He came to save. But since salvation is only through him, the flip side of the coin is that if a person rejects God's gift of salvation, the only thing left is judgment. Somebody's given the analogy of the sun. The sun doesn't shine in order to cast a shadow. But the casting of shadows necessarily happens because of the side of an object that does not receive the light. Salvation's not automatic. Men must believe. Jesus came to die for you. That means that you and I desperately need what he has to offer. As John says in 1 John 1, if we say that we have no sin, we make God a liar. 
If you were to go to the mall this afternoon and ask people, why did God send his son? One of the answers you would no doubt get is that Jesus came to be a good example. But folks, that falls short. The Bible says he became sin for you. There was an exchange that had to take place. He became sin for us that through him we might be made the righteousness of God. And you know, that was foreshadowed in the Old Testament, wasn't it? In the Old Testament, all those animal sacrifices were glimpses of what was to come. The animal would, would be male without blemish. The life of the animal was taken, showing that sin cost. It involves the shedding of blood. And Jesus was the once for all, never to be repeated, sin sacrifice for the world, for those who come to faith in him. You and I are sinners. Paul says in Romans 3.23, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are incapable of saving ourselves. And that means what Jesus did was something that you and I could never do for ourselves. And that's the promise of God's love. He did that and whosoever comes to him will not perish but have. Then I want you to see the passing up of God's love. Whoever believes in him, verse 18 says, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The lights come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. You wouldn't expect those words at this point, maybe. But they're just as crucial as the words that have come before. Because again, the passage points out what I was saying just a moment ago. Points out both sides of why God sent his son. When God's son stepped off the throne of this universe the first time to come down to earth, it was God's love that he came to reveal. His purpose in coming was not to condemn but to save. But let no one despise the grace of God. When he steps off the throne of the universe the next time to come down to earth, it'll be God's wrath that he comes to reveal. In fact, to refuse to believe means that you don't even have to wait for judgment. The text says you're already under the judgment of God. And so whatever comes first, either your death or the second coming of Christ, whichever comes first is simply going to ratify what is already happening your unbelief. Folks, what a great text this is. I, I want you to follow the order here again. Light has come into the world. Well, I want to talk about this for a moment because in the Old Testament, what did people see? They saw the Shekinah glory of God. Remember that? God in his radiance and in his light. Listen to how Nelson's Dictionary describes the Shekinah glory of God. Shekinah dwelling, a visible manifestation of the presence of God. It refers to the instances when God showed himself visibly as, for example, at Mount Sinai 
and in the Holy of Holies of the tabernacle and in Solomon's temple. The Shekinah was a luminous cloud which rested above the altar in the place of worship and lit up the room. When the Babylonians destroyed the temple, the Shekinah glory vanished. There was no Shekinah in the temples rebuilt later under Zerubbabel and Herod. And so what did the people of the Old Testament period long for? They longed for the Shekinah glory of God to come back, to return. The glory of God would once again appear when God sent the Messiah. Zechariah 2.10 says, I will cause my Shekinah to dwell in the midst of thee. And you fast forward to Luke chapter 2 and verse 9, the birth of Jesus. We're told that the angel of the Lord shone around them and the glory of the Lord shone upon them. You see what's going on, folks? In Jesus Christ, the Shekinah glory of God appeared again in the midst of his people. But surprisingly, look at what comes next in John's statement. Men loved the darkness. Men love the darkness and choose the darkness over the light. Why? John says because their deeds are evil. Men still choose darkness over light because their deeds are evil. They're content in their sin. And to come to the light would mean that they would be exposed as sinners. And men don't want to admit this. They want to convince themselves that they're pretty good after all, especially when compared with others. And the light also exposes their acts as being contrary to what God desires. They don't want their deeds being exposed any more than they want their heart conditions being exposed. Because being exposed means that they're going to be confronted with their sin and they need to change. The Bible says lost men don't want that. They love the darkness. But again, continue to follow John's order here. Look at the beauty of verse 21. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Notice he says the one who does what is true or practices the truth. You would expect him to say telling the truth, but truth is more than something you say. It's something you do. You live the truth. And John says here, such a man is not afraid to come to the light. He's not afraid to lay his life before God because he wants the approval of God more than the approval of men. He's not afraid of the convicting and changing that God does. In fact, he desires that above all. Folks, this Christmas, and any Christmas for that matter, I want you to understand that the best gift, the best gift will not be found under a tree. But God sent his best gift to hang on the tree. Jesus died that you might have. And the invitation is, come to that light. Yes, it will expose lostness. Yes, he will expose darkness and sin 
in your life. But the glorious thing is he will shine his light on you and he will change you. He will redeem you. A number of years ago when preaching on the love of God, I started the message that day by giving you the example of one of the greatest love stories known to man, that of Romeo and Juliet. Ends in a tragedy. And you think, what if Friar Lawrence could have gotten to this couple in time and told them what was going on? Romeo gets to Juliet and she's asleep. She's not dead. He thinks she's dead. So he drinks poison and he dies. Then she wakes up and sees her beloved dead. And so she takes his sword and thrusts it into herself, killing herself. What a tragedy. If they would have only known what was going on. If somebody would have only told them. Well, guess what? You and I can't have that excuse because God Again, we see the gospel in a nutshell here. We know we can't go out of here claiming ignorantly. We don't know why God sent his son. Because we see. But you've got to come to him. You've got to come to him. I'll be here to pray with you this morning. Kevin Knight's up in the sanctuary to pray for any who might come there. If you've already come to him in faith, I want you to realize in a few days when we experience Christmas and when we're sitting around that tree opening our gifts, you know what my prayer for us would be? What Paul prayed for the Ephesians, that you and I, that our eyes would be open, that we could see and understand the height, the depth, and the width. Father, open our eyes that we will see and understand. As we read this passage, you tell us. You tell us in plain language why you sent your son. Lord, we're so grateful for your love. You looked at us in our lostness, and the Bible says while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, help us to understand such love as that. And that we would come to you desiring that love to be lived out in us, that we would experience it personally and share it with others. God, open our eyes. Lord, your plan for us is a good plan. Because you came to redeem those who were walking in darkness and who loved their evil deeds in a path that ends in eternal death and separation from you. But you sent your son in that life. do pray for that one right now who needs to come to you 
You've been knocking on their heart's door, maybe for days or weeks. I pray that they would delay no longer and come to you. As the scripture says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Lord, those of us who have experienced that love, and you have saved us. Lord, I pray this Christmas season that we would be eager to tell it to someone else, even if we only tell just one, that each of us would tell even just one. We pray these things in